I threw Roy a little there because it was I who nodded, let's sing that again, and he wasn't quite ready for that. They say the only difference between some modern worship and a machine gun is a machine gun has a limited number of rounds, um, but I don't find that here. Um, really good to be with you this morning. Uh, I've enjoyed worshipping with you and just seeing the way you do things. And can I say a particular blessing in that piano solo during the offering? That was part of my worship. (laughs) That was special. Thank you so much. Uh, For those who were not here last Sunday, unless I get a very clear conviction otherwise, both morning and evening, today and for the next two weeks, We're staying in Ezekiel. Now, I've never done that before. You normally take a different theme in the evening, but um, we're not going to exhaust Ezekiel in eight sessions anyway. And that's not a suggestion that you should have me back to finish it, but um, we're not. And uh, I want to, you know, take as much time as we can in this book and perhaps generate on your part, as there has been on mine, an interest in this wonderful, somewhat neglected uh, prophecy. So we're going to read this morning from Ezekiel 3. Last week we looked at 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, and of course we didn't exhaust them. I'm not competent to do that, but we we did uh, look at those, and uh, we are going now not to the first verses of chapter 3, because there's a lot of chapter 3 that reinforces and uh, says again and strengthens uh, what is in chapters 1 and 2. But join chapter 3 at verse 16, where we get a new theme emerging, please. And then tonight, God willing, we'll uh, move on into the rest of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. So chapter 3 of Ezekiel, verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their lives, Those wicked people will die for their sins, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sins, but you will be saved yourself. Again, when the righteous turn from their righteousness and do evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sins. The righteous things they did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the righteous not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live, because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. Amen. Um, there, there really is, is something I'd like to say almost by way of preface before we, 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 we dig into this. In this passage in Ezekiel's prophecy, the prophet is to warn two categories of people and they're described in terms of the wicked 
and the righteous. Now, we already had this theme as we were uh, having communion this evening and as Roy uh, focused our thoughts on the significance of what we're doing. But we need to understand these terms in the context in which they're appearing here in Ezekiel 3. Uh, We should not confuse righteousness here as that righteousness that comes from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a gracious gift from God, the means by which we're we're born again, we're saved. This unearned righteousness that, that really we were recognizing we don't possess, that we only receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor should we forget that God does not despise the God-fearer. This is so often lost in evangelical circles. The person who, knowing what is right, seeks to do it. Cornelius, for example, in the Bible, is a God-fearer. His, his prayers God hears. The, 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 the measure by which he seeks to do what's right is recognized and honored. But such righteousness, of course, is not enough. And in in our evangelical circles, we we recognize that by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's why Jesus had to die, and we're justified through faith in Jesus, and what he has done, not by keeping the law. But the law remains. The law remains, uh, and it is God's pattern for happy, fulfilled living. Jesus delighted in the law. Uh, And as we become more and more like him, we too uh, should delight in the law. And it's written in our hearts and the commandments of God become not uh, commands in the sense, you shall, you shall not, you shall not. But rather, when my spirit is within you, you'll not lie. You'll not commit adultery. You'll not bear fire. They're promises as the law is written in our hearts. So there are temporal blessings for keeping God's law, whether we are Christians or not. Temporal blessings. And when it says in verses 19 and 20 of this passage here that Ezekiel, by warning others, will save himself, it is not referring to eternal salvation, but rather being saved from the scandal of being a bad watchman. And that's so important. Just like Paul was was afraid of being a castaway, not losing his salvation, but somehow as a consequence of infidelity being set aside by God and no longer useful as as an apostle. So let's understand righteous and wicked in those terms in this context, please. Getting on then into the, the passage itself, the walled cities of the ancient world all had their watchmen. And at night, and I realize I'm simply jogging your memory and reminding you of things that we know, but it's good to, you know, get into the the feel of this passage, to see it very much in the, the drama and the setting of the times. At night, the gates of the cities were closed, of course, and freight And most visitors who arrived after the closing of the gates had to camp outside until morning. There were some exceptions who were allowed through that little gate in the gate, known as, you know, as the the eye of the needle. Um, But at regular intervals along those walls, there were watchtowers. And... These watchtowers, chambers, of course, high up 
from which the horizon could be scanned. Watchtowers around the wall so that in all directions the horizon could be scanned. And up there in that watchtower sat the watchman, employed to be vigilant day and night, high above all the distractions of the streets and the bazaars and the houses, and there in his special location there, he was positioned to alert the inhabitants in the city of any danger that might come. He's there in order to prepare the city for defense, to give them notice, warning. And if he failed, if the watchman failed, if he was careless on his watch, if he dozed off and, and somehow lost his concentration, the consequences if there was an attack on the city, could very well be that he would forfeit his life. Now, this is the analogy that is being applied here by God to Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And it's worth observing in reading this passage that you'll remember Ezekiel He's been reflecting on the situation. He's been reflecting on, on what, what God has been saying to him through this amazing vision that he received in, that's described in chapter 1. And also, from the, he's getting a view from the watchtower. Somehow God spiritually is lifting him above the mundane and letting him see, first of all, what God Almighty, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob is really like. And then he's also getting a view from the watchtower, metaphorically speaking, he's getting a view of what God thinks of the way in which Israel has dishonored him. He's getting a view from the watchtower. And as a consequence of what he has seen of God and what he has seen of the people of God through God's eyes, he is heavy of heart. He's overwhelmed, we discover. He sits there distressed. The verse just before the one that I started at, the verse 15, I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the river Kibar, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days deeply distressed. Ezekiel is, you'll recall, in a refugee camp. Some 500 miles of Arabian desert lies between him and his home in Jerusalem. And the surrounding circumstances are absolutely awful. And God has given him a view from the watchtower of these circumstances. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, he has not changed. And like the, the, the city, Ezekiel is from this elevated position seeing just how he has been neglected and he's overwhelmed. And if you know, if, if, if we know Jesus this morning, and I know that accounts for a vast majority of those who are here, but if we know the Lord Jesus this morning, we are called to see things from the watchtower, we're, we're called to have a different perspective on things, to see things differently. We march to a different drum. We're, we're, we're 
called to a counterculture, to a whole way of living that's profoundly different to the world around us, with the indwelling Spirit of God and with the capacity as a consequence to get a God's eye view of things, we are called to see things and do things differently. From now on, the Bible says, Paul writing, in the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We see things differently. Now, do we? Do we? Do we we take time before God to acquire this view from the watchtower? You know, what about that Dramatic day at Bethsaida on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus and the disciples were exhausted. The the, the account is clear that they were tired. The crowd was pressing on. Where they went, the crowd came. You remember the story so well. And, And to the disciples, the crowd was just a rabble. They were just a nuisance. They, they had had enough of them. I know this is a modern crowd, but it, it, it focuses the mind. How do we look on people? And you remember, this major source of frustration to the disciples, we get a view, as Jesus views them, from the watchtower. And he sees them so differently. He sees them as shepherdless. He sees them as... Sheep, aimless sheep in need of a a shepherd. He looks upon them with compassion and concern. And we need this view from the watchtower. I mean, how did the man in the street view Pontius Pilate? How was he seen? Here is Caesar's man. I mean, he's untouchable. He, He is the arbiter of life and death in this situation in the first century. He's the very epitome of success. Here is a man who really has made it. That, 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 that would be the, the, the general view that folk looking on would take of this man. And I suspect if we had been part of the population of Palestine while he was governor there, we too would have had this perspective. But from the, the watchtower, Things are very different. As Jesus looks at this man, he sees him. You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Jesus saw Pontius Pilate from the watchtower. Really a rather pathetic figure on this stage for a little while and then off. Of little consequence eternally. Can you imagine? I just take these examples for us to to be recognizing how differently things can look from the general point of view. But we're called not to have the general point of view. We're called to see things from God's perspective. Can you imagine that group of hardened, professional Roman infantrymen who are detailed to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Cold, callous, somewhat unmoved by the agonies of their victim. Indeed, they could reason punishment and pain and agony is part of this sentence. 
We need have no sympathy for this man. Just another criminal. They'd killed before. They'd seen it often. Indeed, there was no threat here. This isn't what, even like killing in battle where there is a threat. This is easy. Hold him still. Suffering is part of the penalty. That's the whole idea. He's meant to suffer. This is their mindset. I wonder, did we go to Calvary when we were having communion? You know, I, I sat there and I suddenly realized, Lord, I'm going through this mechanically. God, help me. Help me to really pause and feel something of what it cost you. And, and, you know, maybe even on that occasion at the cross, the, the, the eyes of many turned away. They, they couldn't bear to see the most awful moments in that agonizing situation. Can you imagine the mixture of fear and anger and helplessness and despair among the family and the friends and the disciples? Surely those vile, heartless soldiers were the enemies of Israel. That would be the general view. But from the watchtower. I mean, it's staggering. It's staggering. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The view from the watchtower, you see, is profoundly different to the view that is the norm in society. And the danger is that we can become so absorbed with the philosophy of the age and the thinking of the age that we don't take time before God, with his word, among his people, in prayer, in reflection and meditation, to get the view from the watchtower. It will be terribly uncomfortable, you can be sure. Reporting things from the watchtower, terribly unpopular. It will put us out of step. Now, we don't seek to be unpopular. We want to be as gracious and as tactful as, as it is possible to be, but the view from the watchtower is not going to be a popular view. Ezekiel had received a whole new perspective on his situation and that of the people of Israel in, in exile in Babylon. And it took him seven days. He's overwhelmed. Oh, how we need to acquire this view from the watchtower, God's perspective on things. You know, I believe it will transform church life. It will transform our prayer times. It will transform the sense of urgency and passion with which we witness. A new sense of urgency and a new sense of excitement when we get the, the view from the watchtower. The devil, you see, wants to keep you and me at ground level. He, he just wants us to reflect on things in the same mundane way as everybody else. He does not want us to get this view. Another day, another dollar. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is the, the philosophy. They work a little, play a little, party a little. This is the way to live. Even worship a little, if that's your thing. Oh, yes. Just don't take it too seriously, this God thing. Try the lottery. Scratch the card. Watch the telly. Plan the holiday. Fill in the time. 
shut out those unhappy, guilty thoughts. This is all there is. Make the most of it. That's the philosophy of the age. And it's so easy for those of us who know Jesus to get sucked into this. It's coming at us from all directions. The editorials and the television programs. It's the nature of popular thinking and it is supported by the prevailing philosophy of the age so strongly and it is ultimately a philosophy of despair and a philosophy of aimless unhappiness. Hopeless philosophy. But are we as outspoken and as real as we need to be in order to counter it? If you're not a Christian this morning, there are dark powers that want to keep you in this frame of mind. And if you are a Christian, then there are dark powers that, 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 that within and without that want to deflect you, that want to keep you from mounting into the watchtower and see things from God's perspective. Wants to destroy your testimony, wants to ruin your effectiveness. Listen to what God is saying to us through Ezekiel this morning. I have made you a watchman or a watchwoman. We're called into the watchtower. Where are we viewing things from? From the perspective of this book, is this dictating our thinking? God's views Opening this book and endeavoring to think God's thoughts, to understand, to have the newspaper on one hand, as Spurgeon in his day said, and the Bible in the other, and interpreting events from God's perspective. To see the king in all his beauty, and the land that stretches afar, that eternal perspective that we need to be witnessing to. Do we see the world around us as marred and defaced and crippled and deformed and grotesque? And we know why. We've got the book. We've got the mind of God. Shouldn't surprise us. Here all around us is eloquent testimony to the fact that men and women have turned their backs on God and his ways. Fail to realize the, the glorious potential of what, of what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. And we're not as excited about it as we ought to be. With such clarity from this. Oh, of course there are mysteries. There are things in here that, that, that have not become clear to us yet. But the wonderful thing is this, as Blaise Pascal said, there's enough light to lighten our way to heaven and enough obscurity to keep us humble. Are we excited about it? We cannot be watchmen and women for God unless we're prepared to get up into that watchtower, to take time with them. Most people just looked out on the city streets, you know. They just saw the crowds busy with their shopping and their business pursuits, but I read from the biography that D.L. 
Moody wept because from the watchtower he heard the pound of Christless feet on the way to eternity and it broke his heart. You know, most people in Hong Kong just saw the offscarings of society. People who were high on drugs and deep into sexual excess. But again, we read that Jackie Pullinger from the Watchtower saw lives that, that could be transformed through the good news of the gospel, good news of Jesus, and bring glory to God through these lives. The view from the Watchtower is not blinkered with regard to the realities on the ground. You know, I spent a morning this week with a, a senior army chaplain, a man who is living right where it is with the British Tommy. A man whose feet are on the ground and realizes just the, the sort of philosophy that is driving these young fellows. But a man who has, and it excited me to talk to him, got the view from the watchtower and realizes how these young lives can be transformed by the gospel of grace and, and, and these lives can become glorious for God and he's excited about it and he's seeing things happen. Sexual profligacy is mainstream. Chastity and fidelity are, are mere hangovers, it is said, from a repressive past. Go with the flow. Be liberated. There is no moral restrictions anymore. By all means, play it safe. But morally, there, 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 there is no restriction anymore. This is the, the, the way in which it's a lie. But are we countering it? Not in some negative, uh, judgmental way, but in a manner that, that really glorifies God. The view from the watchtower sees the end results of swallowing the devil's lie. Sees the horror, the misery, the disillusionment. There are moral laws, there are moral absolutes that are just as real as the laws of physics, and breaking them brings awful consequences. The, the watchman will see these things. But the warning cry may well go unheeded because others can't see the danger. Are, are, are we sounding these warnings? Are we, are we getting together to find what are the, the, the most effective ways of, of sounding the, the, the warnings from the watchtower, but in a way that is winsome and Christ-honoring and gracious and compassionate? You know, in the early 1930s, if you're sort of over 40, you'll recognize it. But Winston Churchill was resented and politically ostracized because he kept telling the British Parliament and the British people that Adolf Hitler had designs for the Third Reich to conquer Western Europe and indeed further beyond. And the more he argued his case that Hitler could not be trusted the more he himself was politically regarded as naive. But he was right. And the point of view, from the point of view of world politics, he was faithful. He, he, he was a watchman. And in 1946, he warned the free world again about Stalin and, 
Uh, again, he was maligned, but again, he was right. Okay, it's just a, a, an example from the political arena, but it won't always be popular to, to accept this calling. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. It sounds so arrogant. It sounds so arrogant. For others who don't share our faith, and we, we, we've, we, we've, we have an understanding of why the world is in the mess it's in, as I said. We haven't derived this understanding by our own research and our reasoning. We believe God has revealed it. We're seeing the consequences of God being pushed out of the equation. Our spiritual eyes have been opened and we're alert to the view from the watchtower. What are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? We know the one who has the solution. We have an incredible message of good news. And individually and collectively we're called to get this message across. It has been entrusted. Of course it's God's work. But the wonderful thing about our God, he has brought us into partnership. In order to save this world, our God in Christ became a man. And he has ordained that it is through men. And my spirit within men and women, the mankind, I'm using it in the generic sense, my spirit within the human race is the mechanism whereby this message is to go forth. Are we taking it serious? Are we taking it seriously? Not just confessing it, but living it in a manner that is convincing. This is what we're about. This is our calling. That's why we do church. This is the reason Windsor Baptist Church is here. To take this message, to take this view from the watchtower, and with the help of the Spirit of the living God to convincingly let others see the reality of their condition as we've seen ours. And the wonderful provision that God has made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Let's pray together before we sing. <clears throat> Eternal Spirit of the living God, you who have been sent to continue the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're here this morning. You indwell us. It is you who inhabits our praise and opened our eyes to the truth. It's you who can give us this view from the watchtower and reinforce it and, and challenge the other views that want to seep in and blur our eyes to the truth. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would somehow excite us with the potential of the message we've been entrusted with and horrify us with the consequences of neglecting that message and move us, O oh, gracious God, to take seriously our calling, 
to be faithful watchmen and watchwomen. Hear us, we pray, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.